0: Show. Today, I officially won an ounce of gold. I am referencing a bet that I made back in January of this year. In fact, it was the day uh, the Patriots beat the Kansas City Chiefs in the uh, AFC Championship game. I remember I was doing this panel. I had my iPhone on the podium perched up against my water glass so I can watch the beginning of the game. I was able to watch the rest of the game, or most of the game anyway, in a nearby sports bar. Uh, But during that panel discussion, I said that I thought the Fed was more likely to cut rates in 2019 than hike them. I was the only person on the panel who believed that. Everybody else thought that the Fed would be raising rates, which was pretty much the conventional wisdom in early January, and so today the Fed cut rates, which is what I've been saying they would do. In fact, I not only did I put up a small YouTube video of that bet, as well as the video of the entire panel, if anybody wants to watch it on the YouTube channel, but I also cut a minute or so segment from my interview on the Monday in December of the week that the Fed raised rates two days later on a Wednesday That was the final hike where the Fed went from two and a quarter or two to two and a quarter to two and a quarter to two and a half. And I was interviewed by Liz Klayman. By the way, I'm going to be on Liz Klayman's show again tomorrow. Uh, In fact, they've renamed the show. It's no longer Countdown to the Closing Bell. It's the Klayman Countdown. So congratulations to Liz for having a show uh, named after her. I'm sure her uh, late father would be very proud, uh, who was a fantastic uh, physician out in California, and I'm sure her mother is proud, as is everybody, that it's the claiming countdown, but I will be on that show uh, again tomorrow. But when I was on Liz's show back in December, I made the forecast then that if the Fed raised rates in December that week, which I thought they would, since everybody believed they would, the Fed did not want to disappoint the markets, I said that it would be the last hike. And that the very next move that the Fed would make would be to cut rates. And that is exactly what they did today. They cut rates by 25 basis points. So they basically took away the last hike. And the rate is now where it was prior to the December rate hike. Now, I believe that cutting rates was a mistake. I think the Fed should have already raised rates by more than they have. Not because the U.S. economy is in great shape, because it's in lousy shape, because it's a gigantic bubble. And the fuel for that bubble was cheap money, rates being too low. We need to allow rates to normalize so the bubble can pop and we can restructure a viable economy uh, that is built on a solid foundation, not a bubble. But the Fed wants no part in a healthy economy. Uh, They're more concerned about keeping this unhealthy bubble economy growing which is exactly what the the president cares about. I mean, the president today uh, tweeted out his displeasure probably a few minutes before I started recording this podcast that he wanted a more aggressive cut and we didn't get it. And in fact, one thing that the president did praise the Fed for doing is announcing the end of quantitative tightening, which the president has been highly critical of which is very odd because he was also very critical of quantitative easing. When he was a candidate and even before he was a candidate, he was very critical of the Federal Reserve for doing quantitative easing. And I agreed with Trump that the Fed made a mistake. Well, if you were against quantitative easing, shouldn't you be in favor of quantitative tightening because the Fed is reversing the damage? The Fed would be correcting a prior mistake. But now president trump is happy that the fed called off quantitative tightening now again this is another forecast that i got right because i said from the beginning from before the fed even started to shrink its balance sheet that if it ever began the journey that it would not finish it that the fed would have to abort prematurely its attempts to normalize rates, and that's exactly what's happened. I mean, it's attempts to shrink its balance sheet. In fact, both, normalizing rates and shrinking its balance sheet, it's given up on both, which is what I said from the beginning. And of course, I always said the Fed would be making up an excuse to explain his actions, which is what it's doing, which is why the uh, press conference that followed the announcement was so comical, because the last thing that Powell wants to do is tell the truth because right? he knows the markets can't handle the truth, uh, so he's giving them a lie that they think will be more palatable. Uh, Powell is claiming that the reason that the Fed is cutting rates is because there it's an insurance policy against some of the problems in the global economy spilling over into a healthy U.S. economy. In fact, Powell specifically said that looking at the U.S. economy, he sees no problems whatsoever. There's absolutely nothing to worry about We've got a great economy. We're just cutting rates anyway, just in case these lousy overseas economies somehow affect this great U.S. economy, which to me is a load of BS, right? I mean, either he is lying or he's a complete idiot. And I tend to believe it's the former, right? And the reason that he is lying is because if he told the truth, he would scare the shit out of the markets. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to create a panic. He also doesn't want to upset the narrative that the economy is great, because if he admits that the US economy is having problems and that's why he's cutting rates, well, then the markets are going to be concerned about what those problems are. And so he's pretending that he's cutting rates even though we don't have any problems. So he's trying to have his cake and eat it too when it comes to the rate cuts. And the excuse that he's giving is that, well, there's problems overseas. But as I have been saying, a 25 basis point cut ain't going to cut it. That's not enough. That's one of the reasons the Dow dropped by 330 points today. And it would have been an actual bigger drop. If you go and look at the press conference, when the Dow really hit its lows, which was down 400, maybe 450, I forget exactly. But we closed, we kind of tried to go down there, but we were saved by the bell. Probably if there was a little bit more time in trading, we might have been down there. But when the Dow was making its lows, it was in response to a question, and I don't remember exactly who asked it, but Powell basically answered by saying that this rate cut was not the beginning of an easing cycle. That it was kind of like a temporary or one-off course correction, that sometimes it's you know, the Fed has had to raise rates and then backtrack a little before continuing with more rate hikes. And the minute Powell said that, I mean, the market tanked because, you know, the markets are pricing in more than 125 basis point rate cut. In fact, the odds were 100% that the Fed would cut rates, but it, there was a 20% chance that the Fed was going to cut by 50 basis points this time. And so while the 20 Uh, five basis point cut was priced in, they had to price out the 50 basis point cut because there was a probability of that. So the markets were already having to, uh, you know, price in the fact that we didn't get 50, right? Even though it was a 20% probability, it still was there. But now if Powell was going to take away the next cut or two cuts that the markets were expecting, this was a big problem. And also part of the problem from even before Powell spoke was that there were two dissenters Uh, and it wasn't, they didn't dissent because they wanted 50 basis point cuts. They dissented because they wanted no cuts. So the people who cut were unanimous in their desire for just a 25 basis point cut, which I also think may be scaring the markets because they want people to be pushing the Fed uh, in a, uh, a softer, more dovish direction. In fact, you can potentially describe this cut as a hawkish cut which disappointed the markets because of the way uh, Powell backtracked. Now, of course, what caused the market to actually rally off of its lows was when Powell did backtrack. And I don't know if Powell had any idea that the market had tanked so much on his comment because he's there at a press conference. I don't know if he's actually seeing any quotes or if somebody's in the audience, you know, giving him hand signals or something like it's a baseball game. But he quickly walked back those comments. So after he said this is not the beginning of a rate uh, cutting cycle, in response to another question, maybe two or three minutes later, he said, look, I didn't want to imply that it's one and done, right? So I didn't say that it's just this one cut, that we may not have another cut after it or a couple of cuts. He said, what I meant is it's just not going to be a long easing cycle, right? So that help the markets a little bit because now the markets were okay it's not one and done we're at least going to get another cut but you know I think uh, Powell is correct about the fact that it's not going to be a long easing cycle because it's not going to take the Fed long to get to zero because it doesn't have a lot of ammunition uh, to cut rates and so I think we'll get to zero relatively quickly and we'll stay there right until the Fed completely loses control of this thing and in fact he was asked about his ammunition Somebody said, hey, you know, aren't you worried that by cutting rates now, you're not going to have enough ammunition when we have the next recession? And then the way Powell answered that question was like, well, how do you know that we're not going to raise rates before the next recession? Meaning that just because we cut rates now, they could actually be higher than they are today in the next recession, because we may have had the opportunity to raise them, which that should have scared the market because that would have implied that this is just a temporary cut on the road to even higher rates. But then later on in the same press conference, he backtracked again. And he said that he thought it was a low probability event that the Fed would hike rates before the next cut. So in other words, he's saying that he anticipates more cuts, not more hikes, which means he's gonna have less ammunition if a recession follows those cuts, which has been the pattern. Whether or not the the Fed wants to pretend that it's some kind of insurance policy to make sure we don't have a recession. The last two times the Fed began a rate-cutting cycle, which I believe this is, even though it's going to be a short cycle because we don't have a lot of room between now and zero, and the problems are building very rapidly, despite the fact that Powell and his buddies at the Fed want to deny, you know, for strategic and political reasons, that those problems even exist. Uh, those last two cuts were followed by recession within just a few short months. And that could easily be the case uh, with these cuts. Of course, again, you don't actually know that you're in a recession that soon. You have to wait for the government to revise all the data lower and then come back and tell you that you were in a recession. But anyway, because Powell was not uh, more dovish, the markets have gone down. And I think the markets are going to keep falling until the Fed substantially softens the position that it's staked out today, you know, and the fact that there seemed to be, or there was so much contradictory statements made by Powell during this conference. I mean, it's obvious that he's lying and he's making up excuses, right? Cause he's trying to pretend the economy is great, but he's cutting rates anyway. So, he, you know, he's trying to defend really a ridiculous story. And so that's why, you know, he contradicts himself. So if you're, if you're being honest, then it's easy not to contradict yourself because you just tell the truth. But when you're lying, you weave a very tangled web. And, you know, you you find out you end up, you know, one lie contradicts another lie because you can't really keep your story straight. And that is the position that he was in. And I expect a lot more pressure, not just from tweets from the president. I'm sure the president is going to apply more behind-the-scenes pressure. And, of course, it's the markets that are also going to apply pressure on the Fed Uh, to be more aggressive in its rate cuts. Now, all of the markets did a buy the rumor, sell the fact when it came to the rate cuts, Uh, with the exception of the bond market. I mean, I kind of was expecting the bond market to sell off in response to this. And had we had a 50 basis point cut, the bond market probably would have sold off. But because we got a more hawkish comment from the Fed, I think the bond market continued to rally and long-term rates fell because... In the market's mind, a hawkish Fed raises the probability that we won't avoid recession. Right? People think that if we had a bigger response now, if the Fed took out a bigger insurance policy by printing even more money and cutting rates even more, that maybe we would avoid the recession. But since the Fed is being so stingy with his rate cuts, the recession is going to happen anyway. And that may be one of the reasons that the bond market uh, reacted the way it did, although I do expect there to be uh, you know, some selling on the long end uh, as the Fed ultimately does get more dovish. But gold market certainly sold off. Gold market had risen rather sharply on the anticipation of this cut. I mean, they've been anticipating this now for months. Uh, the gold market was rallying. Uh, gold sold off. It sold off about $17. Not a really big decline in the scheme of things. We closed around 14 13 Still above 1400. Uh, I think the market is now in a range really between 1400 support and 1450 resistance. This is a significant range because it is above the old highs. It is very bullish, and I do expect the gold market to resume its rally and ultimately take out that 1450 high. The dollar also rose on the news. Uh, a more hawkish than expected tone, I guess also bullish for the dollar. So not necessarily a buy the rumor, sell the fact. But the dollar index was up uh, about a half a percent. We're now about 98.50 on the dollar index, which is the highest level we have been at in some time. Again, I do not expect the dollar strength uh, to continue. I think this is a false narrative uh, that the Fed is you know, one and done and that the U.S. economy is in great shape and the only worries are what's happening abroad. The U.S. economy is in lousy shape and the real concerns are for the domestic problems, not the international problems. And as those problems are more known and appreciated, uh, it will weigh heavy on the dollar, especially when the Fed has to relent and reduce rates more. In fact, you know, it's funny, I was watching this discussion on CNBC, of their, you know, normal economic team headed by Steve Leisman, who ultimately, you know, also asked a question uh, later on in the day. He was one of the people that was in the the Powell press conference. But earlier in the day, he was in a panel discussion or leading a panel discussion of a bunch of other economic illiterates on CNBC. And they were discussing what they believed to be the real problem for the Federal Reserve, which was that it was unable to create inflation and that the reason the Fed was cutting rates was because they wanted more inflation, but that you know, thus far they haven't been able to get it and maybe they would fail yet again. And I thought the whole uh, discussion was ridiculous because just about the only thing the Fed can do is create inflation. That's it. I mean, it can't create economic growth or prosperity, but it can create inflation. And that's what it's been doing. And it has succeeded. It's created a lot of inflation. The thing is that even though the Fed could create inflation, it doesn't control how that inflation works its way through an economy. It doesn't control which prices are affected first and which prices are affected later. So a lot of the inflation that the Fed has created has pushed up asset prices, stock prices, real estate prices, bond prices. I've talked about that. Uh, But all that inflation is going to find its way into consumer prices. It's just that it's not going to stop at this, 2% 2% symmetrical target, the ultimate impact on consumer prices is going to be dramatic. So in other words, the Fed is going to succeed beyond its wildest dreams in creating inflation. The problem is it's not going to be able to succeed in putting that genie back in the bottle. You know, which is why they shouldn't even let it loose in the first place, but you have all these idiots who think that we just need the Fed to keep printing money until it gets more uh, inflation as measured by a doctored CPI as if the Fed could actually fine tune what it's doing. And even if it hits that number, like it can prevent it from exceeding it by a wide margin. And the, the financial damage, obviously, to the economy if the Fed overshoots on inflation and in trying to rein it back in is far greater than whatever damage they think happens from inflation not being as high as their target, which of course is no damage, because when it comes to inflation, the lower the better. And no inflation is better than some inflation, and falling prices is better than stable prices. But if your main goal is not a strong growing economy, but to keep bubbles from popping, and to monetize debt and inflate away liabilities, then clearly you want inflation, and that is really what is motivating the Fed. But you know, even on a day like today, where the Fed comes out and claims that the U.S. economy is great, right? And there's nothing to worry about. They don't see anything at all, right, that concerns them about the U.S. economy. Earlier in the day, we got the numbers for the July Chicago PMI, right, today, right? And despite this number, the Fed was claiming that there is absolutely nothing to worry about. Well, how about this report that came out during their meeting? So in um, June, the Chicago PMI was at 49.7. Now, anything below 50 signals contraction and is associated with recession, right? So last month, the Chicago PMI was warning that maybe a recession is coming. Now, we get the July number, and the expectation was for a rebound back above 50, right? Out of the contraction zone, Right. 50 and a half is what they were looking for. And instead we plunged all the way back to 44.4, 44.4. 4. This is the biggest one month decline in the Chicago PMI in 30 years. You don't think that would concern the fed? There has only been one Chicago PMI that was lower than this since the financial crisis. And that was back in 2015. Uh, But if you look at this chart, I think we're going to take out that low. So this all by itself should be something that would concern the Fed because this number is flashing recession. This is not the global economy. This is right here. This is a Chicago PMI number. It's not the PMI in China. Uh, Yet the Fed overlooked this and they overlook all sorts of other data, uh, which shows the economy is weakening. You know, Even in the ADP number, that came out today. You know, we get the non-farm payroll number on Friday. That is the big number. We got the private uh, number that came out today, which pretty much came in right uh, on estimate. They were looking for 155,000. We got 156. So pretty much uh, with consensus, although you never know how the revisions are going to be. Last month's number was revised up from 102,000, which was a weak number, to a little bit less weak, 112,000. But if you look at the small business employment, It continues to contract in ADP, so small businesses continue to shed workers uh, at a rather substantial pace. And I think this is a leading indicator of employment trends in general. I think you're starting with the smaller businesses and you're going to work your way up to the bigger companies. So the layoffs have already started. Yet the Fed is not worried about that. They're not worried about the housing market. They're not worried about the auto market. They're not worried about retailers. There's all sorts of stuff they're not worried about. The fact that they're not publicly admitting they're worried about it, that tells you just how worried they actually are. Because the last thing they want to do is admit that they're worried. Because they're afraid, again, of the reaction in the markets to that admission. And of course, that's why they always want to deny there's a problem. Because they don't want to admit there's a problem and then influence behavior because if The Fed tells everybody, I'm worried about the economy. Well, then businesses might not make certain investments that they might otherwise have made. Consumers might delay purchases because now they're worried about potentially losing their jobs. And the Fed is worried that psychologically, if it lets people know it's worried about a recession, that businesses and consumers will alter their behavior and thus caused the recession that it's worried about. So its plan is to deny that there's a recession, even if it knows it's coming, because it hopes to delay the inevitable. But of course, by doing that, if, an, if a recession is coming, it would be better if consumers didn't buy things that they really can't afford. If It, it would be better if businesses didn't foolishly make investments that will prove to be unwarranted based on uh, a misreading of the economy so it would actually help out if the fed actually warned people in advance of a recession but again it doesn't care about mitigating problems it just cares about postponing the consequences so if it sees a recession coming it wants to make sure that it starts as far in the future as possible even if by lying about it they encourage more bad decisions and malinvestments that ultimately make the severity of that recession that much worse. In the meantime, the question is, how low does the market have to go before the Fed does some damage control or some backtracking? Or maybe if we get a bad jobs number on Friday, then maybe that will give the Fed uh, a reason to backtrack. But who knows? We may get a strong number. We'll see. Uh, And then what is the Fed going to do? Because the market can really get killed if we get a strong number. So uh, the Fed is going to have to Uh, make up an excuse as far as to uh, soften its rhetoric to appease the markets and try to put a floor uh, beneath the stock market and put a muzzle on Trump because Trump is going to take every opportunity to criticize the Fed. You know, anything that goes wrong in the economy is going to be the fault of the Fed or it's going to be the fault of the Chinese because, again, we're not getting a deal. We're not going to have a deal until after uh, the next election, because after all, now the Chinese want to wait and hope uh, because there's a tiny probability, however small, that maybe Donald Trump won't win. And that's what China is hoping for. They're hoping that Trump loses so they can take advantage of Sleepy Joe or whichever Democrat replaces Trump, which again is another reason to vote for Trump. If you want a fantastic trade deal, you have to reelect me, right? I can't give you a trade deal in my first term because my negotiating partners are waiting for me to lose so they can negotiate with somebody else. I mean, if he was such a great negotiator, why would why would that be the case, right? Why would we have to wait till his second term to get the great deal? Why can't he just negotiate it during his first term? After all, he may not have a second term. Why take that chance? He's basically saying, if I lose this election, we're going to have a lousy deal. So why not get that great deal now, right? Why Why, leave, why take a chance? But he's... A, 100% convinced he's going to win, and then he's 100% convinced that we'll have this great deal the very next day. It's almost like immediately, like the day after he wins, China's going to drop to its knees and beg for a deal, right? Well, you know, if the Chinese could wait out the first election cycle, then why not just relay it out the second? Because there's no way Trump can have a third term. We're not going to amend the Constitution unless he's going to claim that he needs a third term to get a deal, that the Chinese, because of the, the Constitution, and since they know That he only has two terms that all they have to do is wait it out another four years and Trump is gone and they'll be able to walk all over his replacement. Maybe he could use that as a rationale to repeal uh, that amendment and allow presidents to serve indefinitely. And then, you know, once we get a new amendment, well, then the Chinese will come begging for a deal. Look, this is all, you know, nonsense. I've been saying since the beginning that, you know, Trump was never going to get a great deal. And once he raised expectations so high for a fantastic deal, he couldn't have any deal because whatever deal he struck would never live up to those expectations. So the best thing he can do now is not have a deal at all, but yet dangle the prospects of a great deal in front of both the markets and the voters all the way up until the next election. So that's great for Trump. And anything that goes wrong, he blames it on, on uh, China or foreigners. And of course he blames it on the Fed. But the Democrats, of course, are gonna blame Trump If you watched the uh, Democratic debate last night, we had part one again. This is the second round of Democrat debates. I only caught glimpses of it. Uh, I didn't uh, watch the entire thing. And they're going to debate again today, right? Now you got the second round of uh, candidates. I mean, the worst thing about the Democratic uh, debates is that one of these clowns is probably going to be our next president. I mean, that's really sad. That's really scary. But that is reality. That shows you how far we've sunk as a nation, that this is supposedly the best we can do. And, of course, all these guys are doing, right? It's all who can out-promise the next guy for free stuff, right? Everything for free, right? Everybody gets everything. That's not what this country is about. This country is not about the government giving you stuff. I mean, even John Kennedy, right, who was a Democrat, asked not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Well, all of these Democrats are campaigning on what the government can do for you. Elect me and I'll give you this for free and I'll give you that for free. And somebody else says, well, that's not enough because we, I'm going to give you this for free and I'm going to give you even that. Oh yeah. Well, that's not enough. Wait do you see all the free stuff I'm going to give you. This is a competition. Everybody is outbidding each other on who can provide the most free stuff. See, the problem is Trump is also promising free stuff too, right? He's not promising limited government and economic freedom. He's promising free stuff, except his free stuff is tax cuts and a bigger military, right? We can get more military for free because we're not going to raise taxes to pay for this military spending. Uh, And of course, I'm going to increase non-military spending too. That's free because I need to do that to get the extra military spending. Oh, and we can cut your taxes and that's free, right? So you've got Trump trying to get reelected, promising free stuff. And now you're going to have the Democrats promising free stuff. The problem is when it's a battle of free stuff, Trump loses. The Democrats will always promise more free stuff than the Republicans. Of course, none of it can be delivered because nothing is free. In fact, the the the, the more free stuff that you expect to get, the more it's going to cost you. Right? Nothing is more expensive than what the government gives you for free. It's just that the voters don't understand that, and the politicians know that. That's why they keep promising all this free stuff. But if we are in this recession, which we easily could be, and if the stock market is back in a bear market, you know, 20% or more from its official highs, uh, it is going to be nearly impossible for Trump to beat any of these clowns. Because not only are they going to outpromise him when it comes to free stuff, but they're going to be the party promising change, and Trump is going to be the party or the president promising more of the same. And he would have let down all the voters that he promised change to. He would have promised to make America great again, and he would have failed to deliver. And now you're going to have a bunch of socialists with the same type of promise. And I think a lot of the people who took a shot on Trump uh, are going to take another shot on whoever the Democrats happen to nominate. Of course, one of the big topics of discussion when it comes to free stuff is the forgiveness of student loans and free education, right? So all this is get your loans forgiven uh, if you already have them. So you already went to school, uh, will forgive your loans. Therefore your education will have been free because you won't have to repay any of the money you borrowed uh, to go to college. And if you haven't gotten to college yet, don't worry. You won't have to borrow any money because you're going to get that for free. Right. And that obviously is how the politicians are trying to buy the votes of students, but also their parents. Right. Because you're telling parents, hey, you don't have to save for your kid's education anymore because the government's going to provide that education for free. So not only is this a freebie to the students that can graduate college with no debt, but it's a freebie to their parents who no longer have to set aside money to pay for college. Right. Well, just like when the government promised Social Security, hey, hey, don't worry, you don't have to save for your retirement. The government's going to do it for you with Social Security. So what happened before we had Social Security? People used to save for their retirement, and then they could retire with dignity. Now, with Social Security, nobody saves, or most people don't save, because they think the government's going to do it for them. Well, you know what? The government didn't save a nickel, and now they'll never retire. They're going to be impoverished because they trusted the government. And the same thing happens to students and families who trust the government to provide free education. You know, I was reading this article written by some guy at CNBC, on uh, the student loan problem. And the purpose of this article, or the the, the reason that he wrote it, he was making the point that the student debt problem disproportionately impacts minorities, particularly African-Americans, that the average African-American has more debt, more college loan debt than, uh, let's say, white Americans, and they don't pay it back as much. So I think like the typical African-American had about maybe 8% more student loan debt than the typical white. So the the, the, the actual dollar amount was not that much higher. It was higher. Uh, and a lot of that is probably because on average, you know, African-Americans probably come from poorer families and therefore uh, need to borrow more money, let's say, than than uh, whites. And I'm sure the blacks probably it's probably more easy for them to qualify for some need scholarships. So that might be limiting how much money they would otherwise borrow if they didn't get those scholarships. But black students are borrowing a little bit more than whites. But where the numbers were really huge was in the repayment rate, you know, where they were only repaying, I think maybe about 20% relative to what uh, white graduates were repaying on their loans so that was the big disparity black students were graduating with more debt but they hadn't they couldn't even pay it they they, they 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 were making tiny payments uh relative to the amount of debt that the white students were paying off right and, and the rate at which they were doing it right? i think they said the white students were paying off their debt at a rate of 10 percent per year and the black students four percent per year so that's a significant difference and so the article is trying to you know figure out why this is the case yet the writer is overlooking the obvious reason, but for political correct reasons, he doesn't want to point out the obvious. So he's trying to make up some nonsense as to why this is so. But there is a very simple explanation for why uh, black students uh, are having a much harder time repaying their student loans than white students. And it's because a higher percentage of black students got into college based on affirmative action. Meaning they didn't get into college because of merit, uh, because they were uh, intellectually ready for college and, and, and capable of doing college work. They got in because they were the right skin color, right? They pe- they made room for them uh, because they were black and they are trying to get more blacks in their student body for diversity's sake. So a lot of the black students, not all of them, but a lot of them never should have gone to college at all. They weren't prepared for it, but they went anyway, right? and they borrowed money to go. Now, since a lot of these uh, Blacks who got into college, who shouldn't have gone to college, but got in because of affirmative action, because they couldn't really uh, you know, uh, take a, a normal course load, or they couldn't major in more intellectually challenging subjects because they didn't really have the, the intellect for that, they would try to find easier majors, right? So they could get through right? African-American studies as an example of a major that was created that's very easy and not very challenging, right? And so you might have a lot of uh, black students who major in African-American studies or some other type of, uh, you know, uh, liberal art type degrees. Not as many uh, black students who are getting in on affirmative action. They're not majoring in mathematics or computer science or or engineering or any of these uh, types of uh, studies or degrees that would enable them to earn a lot of money where they can pay off their debt. So you have a bunch of uh, blacks who are being led into college based on reduced standards, and so a- academically uh, they're not uh, on the same uh, you know level as the white students on average. That doesn't mean there aren't some excellent black students who would have gotten anyway. Sure, there's some black students who you know probably you know are, you know got great scores on their SATs, got great uh, grades would have got in, didn't need any affirmative action. They get out, they major in computer science, they get a great job and they pay off their loan, right? But that is a smaller percentage than would be with, of the white students. You have a lot more black students who got in because of affirmative action. After all, that's the goal of the affirmative action program is to allow blacks who would not have gotten into college based on their grades and based on their scores to let them get in anyway. So obviously that pool, the pool of black students is going to be on a lower caliber intellectually than the pool of white students. And since they're taking majors that don't uh, challenge them as much, that don't require as much study and as much knowledge, and they're majoring in subjects that don't deliver a lot of value to potential employers, then after they graduate, clearly they're going to have a lot harder time repaying their debts. That's just That's common sense but people don't want to point that out because it's politically incorrect to point out the truth but that is the truth and of course whose fault is it why are all of these non-qualified blacks going to college in the first place it's because of affirmative action and why are they majoring in um majors that deliver minimal value to employers because that's the way they can stay in school and not drop out. And of course, a lot of them do drop out. So they borrow a bunch of money to go to college and because they don't have the aptitude to stay there, they don't even graduate. So they end up with the debt, but not the degree. So this is all a function of government and do-gooders and limousine liberals. A lot of these black kids would have been much better off not going to college, doing something else, working, Acquiring a skill or maybe going to a vocational school or doing something else. But instead, the liberals, right, you know, sucker them into this college. They spend four, five, six years of their lives there. They learn nothing of any real value. And now they have a bunch of debt. And we're wondering why they can't pay it off. And now this is a reason for some new, new big government program, right? Government comes in and screws everything up. And then, aha, we have this huge problem. The solution is even more government. That's what all of these Democratic politicians are promising. Their solution for the mess that government made with affirmative action and guaranteed student loans. Their solution is free college and forgive the loans. Instead of reflecting on what a disaster their policies have created and getting out of the way, they want to create an even bigger disaster by doubling down on what's already failed. You know, and a lot of people too, if you say stuff like this, they accuse you of being racist. This isn't racist. This is this is fact. You know, like, you know, one of the other things I hear, like, a lot of um, um, Democrats talk about is they don't like the fact that potential employers, when they are screening their applicants for jobs, they don't like the fact that they could do a criminal background check. Because they say that disproportionately more African Americans have... Uh, criminal backgrounds, right? They, they, they've they been to jail, particularly male African-Americans, right? You have a very significant percentage of African-American males who have gone to prison for whatever reason. And, and so what they're saying is when you do a background check before hiring people, that because blacks disproportionately have been in jail than whites, that these background checks are racist because the impact of the background check is that you are going to disqualify a disproportionate number of black applicants than white applicants. Therefore, it's racist, even though the background check itself is not racist, right? You're just trying to find out if the people that you're hiring uh, have a criminal record, right? Because when you're hiring people, you're taking a big chance and you want to make sure that you're hiring the best people. And one way to weed out a potential bad person is not to hire somebody who's been to jail, not to hire somebody who, especially if they've, in a jail because they've, they've, they've stolen, they're in there for robbery or something. I mean, you're afraid that, you know, your employee could rob you if you have, you know, certain sensitive uh, type jobs. You know, in the brokerage industry that I'm in, we're not even allowed to hire people that have criminal uh, convictions. It's, you know, it's barred because the idea is, hey, you know, this, this is a bad guy. He's screwed up in the past. We don't want to take a chance that they're going to screw up again. In fact, if you hire somebody as an employer, That has a criminal background and you put that employee in a position where he can commit a crime against one of your customers right so one of your customers is defrauded or robbed by one of your employees that person will sue you not the employee that robbed him or defrauded him because that guy might have skipped town and might not have any money but what happens is the employer gets sued because he hired that person and so what someone is going to say is How could you have hired somebody with a criminal background? I assumed that because you hired them that they were honest and that's why I dealt with them. I mean, I I would never believe that you would be dumb enough and reckless enough to put a criminal in charge of my account or you would have me do business with a criminal. And so because of that vicarious liability, because employers are going to be held accountable for the crimes committed by their employees before they hire an employee, they want to make sure that they haven't at least committed crimes in the past, right? They want to limit that damage. And they want to be able to tell in the court, yes, I did a background check. The guy was fine. He had no prior record. How, how was I supposed to know that he might steal from you? But if you hire somebody that has a criminal record, well, you can't claim that you didn't know because, well, there's a record it's public, right? You should have done your due diligence. You were negligent. And, and so employers need to check the background. But now again, you have this disparate impact kind of stuff that, well, if blacks disproportionately commit crimes, then we can't do any background checks. You can't do a background check. You can't even ask about a criminal background. Now, if this actually succeeds, if the Democrats are successful in passing this type of law so that employers are legally barred from inquiring about the criminal background of their potential employees, what is the effect going to be? It's obvious. Fewer blacks are going to be hired. That's what's going to happen because here is the impact, right? This is the unintended consequence because employers are still going to be responsible for the crimes committed by their employees. They're still going to be sued. And of course they're still going to lose money personally if the employee steals from them, right? So employers still don't want to hire people with criminal records, right? But if they can't look into the criminal records, then they just have to make an assumption, a guess, based on other criteria, whether or not a potential applicant is honest or has a criminal record. Well, if what the Democrats are saying is true, and it is true, that black males proportionally have a larger percentage of criminals, people who have been to jail, what is an employer going to do when he sees a black male applying for a job? Well, I can't look into their criminal background. I can't do a criminal background check. But since I know that black men have a higher probability of having committed a crime than, let's say, white men, and if I can't check into the background, if I just have to take a chance in the dark, I have to take a shot. Well, who am I going to hire without a criminal background check? Am I going to hire the black man or am I going to hire the white man? Well, if a black person is maybe three or four times more likely to have had a criminal background, well, then I'm not going to hire the black guy. I'm going to hire the white guy. Now, the odds are that black guy doesn't have a criminal record because the majority of black men are honest. They're not criminals, but a disproportionate minority are. And if I can, as an employer, run a background check to figure out if you're one of the good guys or one of the bad guys, if I'm legally barred from doing that, then what am I going to do? I'm going to make the best choice that I can make if I have to guess, and if I know that black men disproportionately commit crimes. And if I just have a random black guy and I can't check to find out, and then I have a random white guy and I can't check either. I can't check his background, right? In fact, what might happen is I have an honest black man applying for a job and a a white guy who's a criminal, but I can't check the background on either. And so what I might end up doing is hiring the white criminal rather than the black honest guy. But if I was able to run background checks on both, I would have found out that the white guy is the one who's dishonest and I would have hired the black guy. So all this just backfires. All this do-gooding simply backfires on the very people that they're supposed to help. So by trying to say, Oh, employers, you can't run these criminal background checks because that uh, hurts blacks by not running the criminal background checks, you hurt the honest blacks. That's who gets hurt. Honest black people who otherwise would have been employed Don't get the job because the employer doesn't want to take a chance because he can't do a background check. And so he hires a white guy instead. And that's not racism. See, if you are making a decision based on probability and statistics, that doesn't make you a racist. You know, I remember even hearing, uh, you know, interviews with black people who said that, you know, when they, you know, if they see young black males, uh, you know, walking, you know, they, maybe they'll cross the street or walk on the other side or, you know, they're not as worried about young white males or young women, but young black males uh, are, are a concern, of course, because it's probability. I mean, I, I've heard uh, black cab drivers, black cab drivers saying they don't like to pick up black uh, passengers. Are they racist? No, they're just, it's probability or they don't like to go into certain neighborhoods. Right? Because there's a higher likelihood either they're not going to get paid or they're going to get robbed. Right, And these are blacks making these decisions. So if blacks are deciding that they don't want to drive into certain neighborhoods or pick up certain people because they're black, it's not because they're racist. Because they have a history, they have a sampling to go by and they know where the probabilities are higher. And that's what people are doing. And what the government does with all these rules and all these anti-discrimination rules is it actually creates an incentive for people to make decisions based on race that without these rules they would not make the decisions would be based on merit people would simply be hiring the best person for the job regardless of their race but because of these rules that the government puts in then race becomes a deciding factor to work against blacks or other minorities and 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 this is why you know you can't look at the intentions of these laws, but you have to look at the consequences, which is something that the Democrats never do because that's too complicated, right? It's easier to vote for good intentions. When you try to explain the bad consequences, you're mean, you're a bad person, and you can't really do that in a soundbite, right? The free stuff sounds great. Uh, and you don't have a chance to uh, rebuke that in a bumper sticker. Oh, by the way, too, in case you missed it, I did a- another Bitcoin debate. I did it yesterday in the city. Uh, it was a CNBC affiliate out of South Africa that hosted it. My opponent was Anthony Pompliano, effectually uh, known in the Bitcoin community as Pomp. And this is the guy that I've been kind of trading tweets back and forth with. He's the one that started the uh, donation effort into my Bitcoin wallet because you know he had found out that I had been gifted some Bitcoin. Uh, although you know he was saying I had some Bitcoin, like I was a secret Bitcoin hodler. So you should do what I, what I, you know, look what I do, you know, not what I say. He kind of started this whole movement, which has been kind of running amuck on the internet that Peter Schiff is the latest Bitcoin convert. I keep reading these articles, even new ones every day, despite my efforts to put that fire out. Uh, but anyway, I did this debate, but he was the guy that said, put your wallet on, on, on Twitter, because I said I had given a gift. And I had maybe not even $100 worth of Bitcoin in my wallet, which I had gotten for free. And he said, well, give me your uh, address. I'll give you I'll give you another $100. So I gave my address. And I asked him, I said, you know, Anthony, did you ever give me the money? He goes, no, I never I never gave it to you. So many other people gave it to you instead, which is true. About 100 other people gave me about $2,500 uh, worth of Bitcoin. But that kind of started the back and forth. And so this uh, show wanted to host a debate. So now I've done another debate. Uh, so this is the third, you know, high profile guy uh, that I've debated, or the fourth high profile guy. I forget, I've done a lot of, uh, uh, you know, Bitcoin gold style debates. So the latest one is just out, out now. It's on YouTube. You can check it out. Uh, I'm sure, again, you know, the host, nice guy, but very biased. The guy was, you know, from South, South Africa, but he now lives uh, in New York, thinking about moving to Connecticut. But he's, you know, trades crypto. Crypto Trader, I think, was the name, is the name of the show. Uh, so again, the the moderator was was biased as they always are in favor of crypto, uh, so you'll see that you know in uh, in, in the debate as well. Uh, but again, you know I don't think that uh, Anthony was able to say anything compelling. He wasn't able to articulate any type of argument uh, that I hadn't heard that would cause me to rethink my skepticism of bitcoin so if you want to listen to that debate if anybody else thinks that maybe anthony will say something to persuade you have a listen and i will be back again i'm going to do another podcast i'm sure on friday once we get the non-farm payroll report which could be again another big market moving number